Hi, we're here with Jeremy Longhurst of Broadwater talking about next year's ISAS meeting, which will take place in May 2021 in my home state of Florida in Boca Raton. So Jeremy, tell us what kind of resources or events will be available at the meeting for some of the younger surgical trainees, be it medical students or residents. Certainly. There are, I think, two big needs that younger surgeons have. There's the needs of information about how they build their career. And that, I think, often comes through discussion and interaction with surgeons who are obviously in the later stages of their careers. So there's going to be a series of seminars around topics uh, such as if you want to go in an academic career direction, how do you begin to build that? Uh, those young surgeons will be able to get a lot of personalized information during those sessions. And then I think the other direction is, of course, uh, building your own uh, surgical skill set. And so there's going to be a large amount of case discussions, again, with uh, surgeons in the later stages of their careers to really address some of the uh, questions and issues that younger surgeons have about particular cases. And I think sometimes it's easier uh, for young surgeons to be together, to ask those sorts of questions, as opposed to being in a large general session room where perhaps some of the more developed surgeons, older surgeons, wouldn't have uh, those types of questions. Welcome to the Nursery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Bobby Stark. Bobby joined our faculty here at University of Miami a number of years ago. Bobby uh, is incredibly accomplished. Not only is he a surfer and he can break dance, but he went to Princeton for college and he did his residency at UVA, which uh, from what I understand can be up to like 10 years with some time spent in New Zealand. So Bobby, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so the topic today and the title is called Get Off Your Ass and Publish, A Clarion Call for Increasing Your Academic Productivity. And I will admit I came up with this title because uh, when I first looked at, your, looked at your CV when you were being hired, I'm like, wait a minute, I'm a full professor with tenure and Bobby's CV is like twice as big as mine. So tell us about like how many publications you have, and, and you're not bragging, just tell us the number, peer-reviewed publications, uh, just so people can be a little bit impressed. Uh, maybe close to about 500. 500 papers. Sounds about right. <laughs> there's, there's, it's a rounding error. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Wow. Wow. Okay. So that's pretty impressive, but also intimidating. But we know that you, you had to start somewhere. At one point, there was your first publication, right? And I know very few people that have that many papers that are your age. Um, can you tell us like why people don't publish more or don't work more towards this and what they can do about that to remedy their problem? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think stepping back first, you know, as doctors, we we're only going to help so many people through a surgery. 
So the overall goal of research would be to help the next generation of patients or the, the current generation of patients to expand your health beyond just the, the small number of patients that you might be seeing or operating on. I think as far as publications, uh, I've been extremely lucky to surround myself with amazing, incredibly talented people that have you know helped me at every step of the way. And uh, that's allowed me to uh, work on many projects and help out in many ways, even if I'm not heading up those projects. Wow, Dr. Stark, I, I love the perspective you take about research where it's not just something to do for the CV. It's not just something to do even for fun, but it's something to do for the sake of the patients that you can't interact with and treat yourself directly. Um, is that a perspective you always had, or, or is that something you found along the way in your training as, as you got more and more involved with research? I think it was something that I, I developed along the way. Originally, I, I didn't know that I wanted to go into academic medicine. And then over time, I really started getting interested in research as it had direct relevance on the patients that I was seeing. And, uh, you know, that started, I guess, pretty late as a medical student. So it wasn't until my third year that I realized I was going to go into neurosurgery. And at that point, it wasn't, I hadn't realized that I wanted to do academic neurosurgery. So it took, took me some time and then it took me a bit of a, deviating from the path that I was on to gain the skills to uh, be able to help out in research. So Bobby, I, I'm glad you brought that up. So you trained at an incredibly academic institution where I guess at UVA, if you went into private practice or PP, you were like uh, ostracized, right? But what about this concept that, you know, private practice doctors or hospital employed physicians physicians should also pra, uh, should also publish right shouldn't they also um, provide information about what they've learned in their lives to the rest of us yeah I, I agree a hundred percent I mean you don't have to be at a at a major academic center or even an academic center to publish and contribute and I think some of the most significant clinical papers uh, clinical research papers and trials were started by doctors that weren't at a typical or even at, they weren't at an academic center. So I think it's not just for people that, uh, that have a quote unquote academic practice. So let's take a step back and, and think about how we could help some of our listeners indeed get off their ass and start publishing. Uh, you said, Dr. Stark, that it was late in your medical school career that you started down this path yourself. And here we are in July um, residents such as myself have just ascended to a new level of training. Medical students around the country have just graduated to a new year. Many people may be considering an abrupt or sudden change in career path as you yourself did. Um, can you talk them through, maybe from your own perspective, how you went through those first steps toward uh, getting involved with different research groups at your own institution, getting your first papers out and kind of getting all those wheels turning that got you where you are today? Yeah, sure. That, I think that's a great question. So I, I originally thought I was going to do family medicine or internal medicine. So it wasn't until my third year that I started realizing that I loved surgery and that uh, I was going to go down a completely different path. And then once I got to neurosurgery, I, I became so interested and involved in it that 
I really uh, was excited, not just about the patients that I was seeing, but you know how we could kind of change what we're doing in the future. My first publication was, I think, like a lot of people, a case report that uh, actually Dr. Jane pulled up the first time he interviewed me uh, before residency. And the first couple papers that I tried to help out with were, you know, small case series of patients. And, and in that time, it was mainly working on writing and starting to think about clinical scientific methods. And ultimately, I became so interested in the research side as well that I decided to take uh, two years off and do a master's in the National Institute of Health Clinical Research Training Program. And during that time, I worked in the vascular research lab at Columbia University while I was getting a master's. And so I was doing basic science, translational research, and clinical research. And through taking all those classes, you know, I started to build a foundation for how to conduct studies. Wow. So you've had wonderful mentorship. How would you um, advise younger folks who are, are looking for the right mentors? I mean, not everybody's going to do two years at NIH or I'm sorry, at, at Columbia University funded by the NIH, right? How, how would you suggest they seek out mentorship and, uh, and get the right direction? Because obviously that had a big impact on your early career, right? Yeah, I was extremely lucky. Uh, I worked in the vascular research rabbit at lab laboratory at Columbia under Dr. Connolly, who has mentored a pretty large number of students that have gone on to contribute significantly to the field of neurosurgery. I think for the the students that are thinking about research, you know, as you said, it's key to identify a, an excellent mentor. I think first off, it's finding someone in an area within neurosurgery that you're passionate about. And then on top of that, finding someone who has a track record or history of mentoring students or residents on the past that have gone on to uh, contribute. So that might be starting out by talking to other students or other residents or fellows or other attendings to see know who are the attendings or who are the the people that really are willing to invest their time and energy to train the next round of people that are going to be you know future leaders in the academic field wow dr stark i'd like to take a step back to something you mentioned earlier when you were first getting involved in research as a student you said that a lot of your early papers were small case reports or case series where you're really just focusing on your writing and as important and obviously integral as study conduction is to generate the data to report in a research journal or publications, writing the actual paper is obviously a necessary step to publishing it. I wonder if someone who is now as prolific as you are with so many papers under your belt, if you have any advice for early, young, blossoming writers um, about your methods, how you fill a blank page, how you go back and edit, you know, Famous writers throughout history um, all have their own techniques. Hemingway famously said, write drunk, edit sober. I'm sure in academia we try to avoid that. But um, what techniques or practices have you developed in your career to getting words on the page? Yeah, that's it. That's a great question. I think the first one is reading a lot in your discipline. And suddenly you realize that 
a lot of the papers have a similar flow or a similar methodology. And you realize that by reading many of the, the papers and reading them over and over again, all of a sudden it's not that hard to write your own papers. You know, obviously you need to make sure that you're using novel, novel language, novel words, novel studies. But in the beginning, you're not going to be often taking a major quantum leap forward. You know, you're going to be expounding upon a study that was previously done or a series that was previously published. The second part, which may be more relevant for grants, is aside from the classes that I took in research methodology, most major universities have a grant writing class. And I took that as well, uh, actually as an attending. And that was incredibly helpful, not just for writing grants, but also for writing papers. So, Bobby, it's it's such an interesting thing, you know, the the intimacy of sharing your writing with someone. It's kind of like the intimacy of of the spoken word. So it's often said that, you know, Americans and people in general are terrified of public speaking and they're also terrified of having people read their writing. Right. And so uh, you spend some time as a physician or, or a medical student, you write a paper and you send it to an editorial review board at a journal. It comes back, of course, with mostly negative comments as that's their job. And it's really uh, emotionally, I think, hard. I think I've commented on that in our other podcasts. How do you, I mean, having written 500 papers that were published, I imagine you've read a lot of comments, right? How do you buttress yourself for, for, you know, from all of those comments? Because it can be really, I mean, it can be taken personally, right? It can be something that's deflating or devaluing in terms of self-esteem. What, what do you do personally? Because that means you're, you're getting reviewed all the time, right? Yeah, I think that the process of publication is a, is a constant review. So constant set, set of a criticism and feedback. Certainly, I, I remember one of, the, one of the earlier publications that I worked on, I gave it to uh, Dr. Mayer, who's a great, great mentor, senior neurologist. And when he gave it back to me, there was almost not a single word that was read. <laughs> uh, meaning the color red. I mean, he had literally gone to the to the extent that almost every word in the paper he had put a comment on, and I was I was blown away that one he invested that much time, and uh, two that I was so far off in what I was working on. So I think you've got to have a pretty you know like like all of these fields you got to have a pretty thick skin, and understand that it's really not personal. You have to use the feedback and the criticism to make your publications better and stronger. Well, now, Dr. Stark, I'm going to redirect you again. So we've talked about conducting the studies and generating your data. We've talked about writing the paper to share your findings with the world. Now let's take a step even further back, and I'd like to get your take or, or your methods or your experience on finding the inspiration for the study to begin with. Um, I assume that this is a skill or a facet that you have developed more so later in your career as an attending who is more directing studies than conducting them under another PI. But I often wonder if, like they say, writers walk around the world listening to conversations, looking for characters and scenarios to use in a work, how you develop the perspective where you go through your day-to-day -day life working in a hospital, interacting with patients, and still keeping an ear to the ground for, oh, there, there's something here. 
Oh, this case is worth sharing with my community. Oh, what if we looked at things from this angle and tried that? How have you developed this sense of identifying potential questions to be answered or stories to share in the academic literature? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think certainly, like you said, uh, it develops over time. And the more projects you work on, uh, the better at it you probably get. Number two, you know, with, with all these things, again, I would say, if you surround yourself with great people that have a track record of identifying important questions uh, over time, you're going to learn a lot from that and start asking many of those questions. And then the last thing is, when I try and sit down with a student or a resident, my advice is, you know, have, think about your publications in multiple tiers. So you might have your case report, which is easier to publish and maybe potentially less impact. You have your potentially retrospective series of patients that again, you know, might be a little bit harder to publish. Uh, will have some impact, but not not to a tremendous degree. And then you have your randomized clinical trial that you're working on or developing that will have a major impact. And and I think about it the same thing for basic science. You know, you ha you have projects at different levels, some that are for sure going to be published, but maybe have low impact that go all the way up to an idea that might be incredibly brown groundbreaking may have a, a huge impact or even you know something like that we can all aspire to a nobel prize or something along those lines but is also incredibly high risk and unlikely to pay off or uh you know pull through well you know bobby that's such an important point especially with the proliferation of sort of uh pay pay for published journals or maybe newer journals and Maybe you can help our, our listeners understand how citations are handled nowadays. It's quite complex, right? So you said you have over 500 publications. I took the time to look up your H index, and my understanding is in the mid-60s, right, which is incredibly impressive. I have uh, publications in the 200s. I've been in, in, in the world a lot longer than you publishing, so I have an advantage here, and my H index is in the 40s, right? An H index in the 60s is truly through the roof. Tell us a little bit about how how that's calculated, why it's calculated, and does it really matter what your H-index is? Yeah, that's that's another great question. The H-index, and, and there's many indexes, I guess, of your academic productivity to, to some extent, is a marker of how much you've published and then how many times those publications have been cited. So I think Dr. Oldfield has one of the highest uh, productivity records of a neurosurgeon. And it wasn't just that he published so many papers. It was that he had some tremendous works that had a major impact on our field that were cited you know, hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of times. So you know, I think it's, it's important to publish, but it's also you know, important to have publications in those sort of various categories. So one of the publications I worked on took about seven years of experiments. And probably that one publication is worth a hundred of, you know, my smaller publications, you know, to, to, some, to some extent. So, Dr. Stark, something I would like to ask you uh, particularly 
coming from the perspective of someone early in my career, uh, very recently out of medical school myself, and now rising through residency, we often feel a pressure to publish more and more um, to enhance our CVs, um, also to make us better job applicants for the students to make themselves better applicants in the match, trying to get a position in residency. And with that pressure can often come a temptation. Um, obviously, in, in getting a paper published, you, you know, I, I don't want to touch on falsifying anything in a report or falsifying data. That's a, a larger and broader conversation kind of, kind of outside today's discussion. But there's always a temptation to maybe put your buddy on a paper or ask to have your name put on a paper as a favor to each other to kind of raise everyone's index and, and raise everybody's publication numbers. So thinking about the concept of meaningful contribution, from your perspective, uh, what, what's your threshold for meaningful contribution to a paper? And what level of contribution do you think someone really needs to meet to qualify for authorship on studies of various different levels? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Another tough one to kind of answer. Um, I mean, I think some of the journals now have a subset criteria for authorship, which I think, you know, keeps, keeps us all honest. You know, it, it has to do with writing the paper, editing the paper, but starting from the beginning, coming up with the data, analyzing the data, designing the study, uh, and carrying it all the way, all the way forward. And, you know, for the, for the senior author, sometimes that's even just taking general responsibility for the, for the study and the content. Um, we used to, I, I would say a long time ago, it used to be very common that most of the papers only had one author. And nowadays we're probably in a system that, uh, where there's many more authors. Um, I guess for me, you know, anybody that can make a meaningful contribution to a study should, in my mind, be included in, as an author. And uh, that could be difficult to define, I guess, depending on the case, the, this, you know, the, the piece of research that's being done. Very good. Well, Dr. Stark, on behalf of our listeners and Dr. Wang, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. As I said, it's early in the academic year, so I think our audience at all levels within academic medicine or private medicine, as we discussed, can benefit at this time of year from thinking about the steps you took uh, starting late in medical school to get involved in research, uh, get active in the publishing sphere and, and see where it took you over the course of your career to the impressive uh, level of impact you've had in the literature now. And I think we've covered everything from how to come up with an idea to, to bring it all the way to a journal. So again, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your experiences. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I mean, it's a humbling experience with uh, so many people that have contributed so much more than I have and uh, with so many of the scientific leaders, but hopefully this will help uh, some of the students or residents get further along. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Hey, this is Angela Richardson, the Skull-Based and Cerebrovascular Fellow at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, reminding you to sign up to contribute to the NREF through Amazon Smile. The NREF has contributed $30 million to the future of neurosurgery over the past 40 years. If you have any questions or problems with the registration, you can email us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com.